You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. In restless dreams, I walked alone, narrow streets of cobblestone beneath the hollow of a street lamp. I turned my collar to the cold and damp. When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of silence. And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more. People talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never share. And no one dared disturb the sound of silence. You are listening to the sound of silence by Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. And now we move on to this week's episode of the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. So it's a sunny and wonderful day here in Darmstadt, Germany. I'm Anirban and it is my pleasure to host this particular episode of the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. Today I have with me my co-host, Henry. Hi, I'm Henry. I'm today's co-host and I'm looking forward to today's session. Wonderful. It is really a very special session today because we have our first guest from the pathology world. We have Dr. Yuri Tolkach, who is a senior pathologist from University Hospital Cologne. And along with his daily clinical work, he's really, really involved in research. And he has written quite a few exciting papers about deep learning in digital pathology. One came last year in Nature Machine Intelligence. This year, we have a new paper, which we will discuss into more details. But beyond that, welcome Dr. Talkach into the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here and it would be great to have a discussion about digital pathology and implementation of deep learning models. Thank you. Wonderful. The first question to Yuri would be, you are a pathologist, but you also know coding and that's really interesting, but rare kind of combination. So if you can tell us how you have become who you are, what were the years of your development to where you are currently now? 
Um, yeah, I think it's maybe not that frequent combination, but I think it's um, all about my education and school. And I'm, I come from from Russia. There we have a special accent on mathematics, physics in school. And I think from that time, I learned how it's interesting to try to create some kind of things through personal engagement and coding. And also, I think the way I selected in medicine was to some extent uh, because every member of my family, my parents, my sister, are all physicians. So I think it was uh, a predefined way for me. But I think I always wanted to make some stuff in the area of programming of the mathematics and actually uh, there was no possibility to do for many years and I think with begin of my work in pathology because earlier I also worked a lot in the clinic as urologist I think I spent uh, seven years as urologist and then decided to change to pathology and this kind of adventure with coding with, with artificial intelligence started since I became a pathologist. So maybe one quick question around that. You said you are originally from Russia and then at some point you moved to Germany. So I guess your audit, like training in the coding and stuff that happened in Russia. And I guess you have become a pathologist here in Germany after like the medical school training, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think I did not practice coding for many years. And, you know, with this developments in artificial intelligence um, last years, actually a friend of mine, he told me he was going to make a, a kind of project in the pathology and artificial intelligence. And uh, we started and I was just uh, supporting this project from the pathology side. And maybe in several months, I decided to try myself to code some models. And it was so interesting and actually so easy that I decided to pursue it on my own. Yeah, now you are planning to take away the plates of computer scientists why <laughs> you can coding as well. And I mean, it's funny when you said coding is so easy. That's like the last thing we want to hear from physicians. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is really wonderful to hear how much interest you have in actually going beyond your absolute prime research field. So that's, I guess, the most interesting thing where interdisciplinary research happens. So you are currently practicing in Cologne. Are you also trained in Cologne? So I spent probably four years in Bonn, in the University Hospital of Bonn, and then changed to Cologne, finished my pathology education and started working as a physician and later on as senior physician and being responsible for two directions in the Institute for digital pathology. It's a relatively new field, and we are trying to establish a digital pathology system. We already have infrastructure and started to sign out the cases completely digital, but it's um, still the beginning of the way. And also my second clinical direction is genitourinary pathology, and so kind of pathology area dedicated to the diseases of kidneys, of urinary bladder, of prostate, and so on. All right, very nice. So I think today uh, we're going to talk a lot about digital pathology. So maybe to start with, can you maybe give us a quick introduction to the field? So what are the specialities about digital pathology? Maybe what is digital pathology even for parts of our audience who have never really had any intersections with that field? Yeah, of course, I think it's a very interesting transformation occurring in, in medicine and also in the pathology. 
So basically, since years, we work with a microscope. So um, the traditional work of pathologists is kind of receiving some specimens or small samples called biopsies from patients. And we have to prepare them as uh, very thin sections and to look under the microscope if there are some pathology, for example, if there is a tumor or not. And basically, um, many cases we have are about malignant or benign tumors, so kind of oncology cases. And this is something we were doing since many, many years. In the last time, we have a possibility to work absolutely digital without microscope. So our normal tissue sections will be scanned using a special equipment, a histological scanner, so histoscanner. Um, we have several in Köln. In Cologne, um, normally there are different models of scanners. There are scanners, for example, which scan only one slide and it will be a very long way, for example, 20 minutes. And then you receive kind of um, a large file, for example, two gigabytes. And uh, there you can see all details of this tissue specimen or, or this tissue sample. But in Cologne and for regular work as pathologists, you need um, kind of high throughput scanners. So the scanners which can quickly scan a lot of slides, a lot of tissue specimens, um, because otherwise it will be too much time for processing of the case. So we have to do our job quickly to provide diagnosis for patients very quickly. So we just need this scanner. And we also need a kind of uh, software for digital pathology. Normally, it's kind of a system that allows the visualization of these large images. And normally, you work under the magnification of 200 or 400x. So all microscopes we work with allow the magnification of 400x. But this does not mean that we always work under this high magnification. Many diagnoses we make um, are possible under magnification of 50x. So it basically has implications for development of deep learning models. Of course, if you scan or if you work under magnification of 400x, you have a lot of data. But for many diagnoses, and also for diagnosis of, for example, of malignant tumor, it's very sensitive diagnosis in pathology, you probably need much less magnification. So, for example, you can make diagnosis under 50x and you will have less data to analyze. So it's kind of practical aspect for developing of the models. Wonderful. So maybe one question around the technicalities, because this is something totally new to our listeners, is basically you have a certain workflow, right? So you do, I guess, a bit of staining when you receive the tissue and then you put it into the scanner, you scan. So can you tell us a little bit about a very far away view of your typical workflow in a non-deep learning, non-machine learning way? Yeah. Um, for example, we receive a sample from a patient. This can be a small biopsy. And for example, it's a gastric biopsy. So kind of a patient has pain in the area of his stomach, of her stomach. And a physician called endoscopist, so kind of through a minimal invasive way, obtains a small piece of the stomach wall. And this is a small piece of tissue, for example, two millimeter in diameter. And we receive it in the pathology and we have to analyze it and to make a diagnosis if there is an inflammation or maybe if there is a tumor or maybe it's just a normal tissue. So the first step is always a fixation with formalin. So we have to fix the tissue to be able to cut it and to process it. 
the next step is kind of cutting the tissue. So we have to make uh, very thin sections, kind of five micrometer. And then this section will be placed on kind of glass. Um, then these sections will be stained with normally with two substances, hematoxylin and eosin, providing kind of typical colors, which make possible kind of visual analysis of this tissue. Then we take this small glass uh, with a tissue section stained already and put it under the microscope. And then when we can see a kind of constellation of different tissue structures, cells, for example, gastric mucosa, kind of the inner layer of the stomach. And we can see if it's inflamed or not, if there are some kind of tumor or maybe a kind of lesion that can be transformed to tumor with a time called dysplasia for example. Then we use this information to prepare a report. So at the end of every case, there is a report. And in this report, we write down what we have seen, kind of describe the cells, tissues, and everything called microscopy. And then we put the diagnosis at the end of every report. So kind of concise statement if there is a pathology or not. So that's typical workflow. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being so concise. I really appreciate that. So I have Two quick follow-up questions before we move to the next topic of ours. One thing is basically you are talking about diagnosis. So do you only focus on diagnosis or do you also consider some prognostic stuff? That's the first question. And the second question is about the report itself. So we know from radiology that most reports are unstructured texts. Is it the same case in pathology as well or it's different? So, of course, when we make a diagnosis, uh, dependent on situation, we can provide an extra information, so kind of additional value to our diagnosis through two types of investigations. Um, we can provide some kind of prognostic information and also some kind of predictive information, or sometimes we call prognostic and predictive biomarkers. Biomarkers is some kind of information, some kind of parameter we can extract from tissue sometimes with additional stainings or additional investigations. For example, additional staining, I mean mostly immunohistochemistry. So we, we can try to investigate some kind of target in the tissue, protein, for example, expressed by tumor cells. And when this protein expressed, then we can say it's kind of tumor sensitive to some kind of treatment. And this protein and then a predictive biomarker. So predictive biomarker is a biomarker which tells us if tumor is sensitive to a special type of treatment. So it can be immunohistochemistry, that kind of additional staining, which we can evaluate under the microscope as well. And there is also some kind of molecular studies. So we can make next generation sequencing or kind of other studies and can really precisely say if a tumor has kind of mutation and if this mutation makes it sensitive for therapy. So this is predictive biomarkers, so prediction of therapy response and also some kind of prognostic biomarkers. So prognostic biomarkers, for example, tumor aggressivity is kind of a parameter which says to us if in general a prognosis of patient with this particular tumor with regard to survival, with regard to metastasis and development is different from other patients. So there are different approaches. And for example, in Germany and in Germany-speaking countries, it was more tradition to make uh, more free text-based reports. So kind of physician just says in a completely free mood uh, what he or she thinks about this case. 
But of course, the trend of last years, and for example, in United States of America, it's actually a standard, um, is using standardized reporting. So kind of templates where you just select, for example, tumor, yes or no, for example, tumor aggressivity, and you can just select the types of aggressivity or tumor subtype, and you just select the possible variants. And I think it's a very important trend. And I know already some institutions in Germany, and we also in Cologne try to introduce this uh, standardized reporting, and it allows much more, for example, if you talk about development of deep learning-based models, or just about mining of the text for extracting relevant information for such training of course it's um, a valuable tool when you probably will spend 10 times less just preparing your information that perfectly leads me to my next question which is basically about the use of artificial intelligence and automatization in digital pathology as you have explained very nicely there is basically a quite complex pipeline with different steps and uh, basically different outcomes, different things that can be done with the data. So what of these tasks could be automatized by artificial intelligence or what subfields are there basically? So actually, I think most of the work we do is kind of diagnostic work. So we take a tissue specimen or tissue sample and make a diagnosis. And it's all about simple tasks like kind of analysis, quantitative or qualitative analysis of the cells, of the cell composition, um, kind of structures. And actually, these are typical tasks like detection, segmentation, uh, kind of basic analysis of the pathologist makes in his head. And uh, these are all kind of computer vision tasks which can be automatized. And of course, I think the implementation of deep learning models will start with kind of simple diagnostic domains. So for example, if I have a gastric biopsy or prostate biopsy, the most important question I would like to answer is if there is a tumor or not. And of course, tumor cells look very different compared to normal cells. So basically, we can just take these two classes and train a model to detect if there is a tumor or not. And there are a lot of publications and also many commercial products which are still not available for practice. They are in course of clearance, in course of clinical validation, but there are a lot of them which allow these basic tasks. But um, very important is that every model addresses only one single task. And pathologists during analysis, they perform in parallel many different tasks. So it's kind of not a substitution for pathologists, but rather the instruments which will help pathologists, support pathologists in automatizing some of the tasks and make work more reliable and more weak. Yes, I mean, totally, I agree with you on the fact that these are really not to replace any physicians. I mean, in any case, you as a physician don't take a diagnostic decision based solely on the image information. Like if the tissue sample is coming from a 70-year-old male versus a 20-year-old female, that, that has a major implication in terms of what your diagnosis would be. You have also other clinical information and I don't think any of the neural networks currently have that information uh, or they are using it in any systematic way. So that way, I totally agree with you. 
I guess another question around this that you just mentioned about the classification. So that's a typical machine learning workflow, right? So the images in, you do some convolutional neural networks, and then you go ahead into the decision system of classification or regression, stuff like that. But we also have seen similar workflows in radiology, right? So that's where it's very, very common that just X-ray input and diagnostic of whatever 14 different diseases are output and stuff like that. So how is pathology different from radiology images in that context? I think these two domains are very different due to several aspects. Firstly, for example, radiology, there are some investigations which provide two-dimensional information like a conventional X-ray or mammography, for example, for screening of breast cancer. And there are also kind of more advanced studies like tomography, computer tomography, or magnet resonance tomography, which provide a kind of a series of two-dimensional images which should be analyzed altogether. So in pathology, we work only with two-dimensional information. Uh, so all slides we analyze are two-dimensional. So also there is a difference that we have everything in color and radiologists have a kind of grayscale images. So it's a little bit different dimension. And also I think that in pathology, we have much more information. So for example, a typical X-ray slide will be kind of probably maybe 2000 pixels. And in pathology, we have images which are normally more than 100,000 pixels in size. So we have a lot, much more information in single slides than, than radiology. Um, I also think it's a little bit different level of information. So we have a lot of cells and I'm not sure, but I think that in pathology, you have much more information coded in this slide. So maybe it's um, a little bit lower level and radiology a little bit higher level. I don't think it's actually have, has implication for complexity of tasks like training a model. So just radiology and pathology are two different domains which specific difficulties. I think you can compare them um, because the principles we use are basically the same. So kind of convolutional networks are a little bit different, for example, if you analyze computed or MRI and compare it to pathology, but the principle of analysis is the same for computer vision tests, like classification, segmentation, so radiology works a lot of with segmentation. And in pathology, you use more, for example, patch level classification. Principles are the same, but domains are a little bit different. Mm, that sounds uh, a bit to me like one of the most challenging things are basically the input data and also the sizes of the input data. I mean, uh, the whole slide images, which are relatively large and high resolution. So what are maybe some technical things that one could do to basically uh, prepare the data for a neural network to classify things? So I think in radiology for many, or maybe for, for almost all application, you will just uh, take a slide, um, kind of X-ray, or maybe one section from tomography, and just resize it and input into the model. So in pathology, you will not be able to do this. Um, a normal way to analyze large pathology slides is to tile them into patches, a kind of process in a series of patches. So as far as I know, I have seen some publications where you can take a complete slide, maybe resize it a little bit and input into the convolutional network. But I think it's just experiments and normally you will just analyze a complete image in small patches. And of course, you have to think about time um, issues. 
So for time of analysis, so time of analysis should be acceptable. It should not be analysis that lasts, for example, one hour per case, because every pathologist will be ready with a case in 10 or 20 minutes. And you have to also to consider, for example, many cases, especially larger resections, kind of stomach resections or prostate resection or breast resections. One case will consist of 20, 30, or sometimes 100 slides. And every slide had dimensions, 100,000 pixels, sometimes even larger. Um, so you have to consider a time issue. And for time is important, I think, which magnification you use for analysis. So you have to always to select the smallest magnification. So kind of if you analyze all slides under 400x magnification, you will have large times of analysis. So you have to select, for example, 5x or 10x. So when I say 5x or 10x, it's a normal way of expressing magnification. It's only magnification of the objective of the microscope. Also, you have to consider maybe larger pages and um, because if you if you analyze the image in many small pages it will also extend the time of analysis so it's kind of balance between accuracy you can achieve on lower magnification and time to completely analyze the case because it can be really very critical and maybe the model is very precise very accurate but it takes maybe two hours to analyze the complete cases and you cannot apply or implement this kind of model in pathology effectively one question or probably moving on actually based on the what you actually said right now is that pathology is very different and then there are of course one of the size requirements that we just were discussing but apart from that there are many other problems and in particular we will talk about your paper that came in June 2021 so last month from when we are recording. It was a paper in modern pathology. Uh, Yuri is the last author, the senior author of the paper, and the paper is called Quality Control Stress Test for Deep Learning-Based Diagnostic Model in Digital Pathology. So it's a big name, but it's still general enough so that most of you can understand what is going on in terms of the content. But coming to the senior author, if we have to understand the basics of the content. So can you maybe summarize three or so main points of the paper? Yeah, I think it all starts with a certain issue about artificial intelligence. So when we see this kind of publication in the literature, we see a kind of, the, of products which are going to be introduced in the clinical and pathological routine. We experience kind of euphoria because we think that artificial intelligence can make everything. So it works well. It has very high levels of precision. But I think that actually in the real life, it's a little bit different because, uh, for example, in pathology, we have a huge heterogeneity of our ma diagnostic materials. So, so these slides we make, these tissue sections we made, they are highly heterogeneous. And this heterogeneity has uh, several layers. For example, every section is a human work. So there is a person who cuts it, who stains it. Some tasks are standardized or automatized, but many of them are this really human-made product. And in our histological slide, there are a lot of artifacts like cutting artifacts, staining artifacts. So basically, if you prepare two sections from one tissue block, from one tissue sample, they will never look the same. They 
always will be different with some kind of aspects. For example, there would be some kind of folds or some kind of tissue will be a little bit thicker and uh, maybe there would be some staining irregularities. So they will never be the same. And if you take two slides or two tissue sections from different institutes, they will be totally different. So for example, colors of staining will be very different. Um, also cutting artifacts and preparation artifacts, um, they are different between different institutions. So another layer of heterogeneity is about digitization of these slides. So if we just take one slide, one tissue section, and try to uh, digitize it with two different scanners from different vendors, and we have three, four vendors of scanning systems, they will look totally different. So the colors, the perception of colors will be totally different. So basically, all these slides we have are very heterogeneous, and the models, uh, deep learning-based models, uh, which are being trained in course of studies, in the course of development of products, they mostly use as training material some kind of best slides and best available material. So no one cares about artifacts we see in histological sections um, in course of development. They are just ignored. And you take the nice material, well-looking slides, uh, good stained slides, and try to develop something. But when it comes to um, deployment of this model or, or, or implementation of this model in the real life, then all these artifacts come to the surface and you have to work with material which is full of these artifacts. And it's actually not just several slides, for example, one or 2% of slides with artifacts, you can find some kind of artifacts in almost every histological section in almost every slide. For example, when the tissue section is a little bit thicker or has some faults and you try to scan it, you will have problems with focus. And focus is one of the headaches in digital pathology because almost in every slide scanned with every scanner, you will find some kind of areas out of focus and you have decided as physician, as pathologist, if you're going to analyze the slide or you rescan it and then analyze it once more time. So actually it's a decision of pathologists and pathologists, of course, can compensate for some artifacts. Yes, there is an artifact, but I know I can interpret this tissue behind the artifacts reliably and I just make it and I don't recut or restrain this slide. But deep learning models, they function a little different. So they don't have kind of internal mechanism which says to them, okay, there is an artifact and please be careful. Um, your predictions can be a little bit biased uh, through this artifact. Actually, this is an area which pathologists would not be able to analyze because there is a focus inconsistency. So the deep learning model, they just go through and analyze everything they see. And as you like to say, Anibarn, in case of artifacts, they will just fail silently. Yeah? And I think it's a major problem. And actually, it was an aim of our study just to take, just to analyze what kind of artifacts we normally see in histological slides and then try to reproduce a major type of these artifacts and to test if our model for prostate cancer detection, which was very accurate in the validation study we published um, a year ago, if it's going to be such accurate, uh, such precise in case of artifacts. So, for example, all models work with patches. So we just kind of take some test data, the patches with tumor 
or benign tissue and just bring kind of different artifacts into these patches, kind of generate synthetical artifacts and give these patches to the model. And we know this model classified this patch without artifact very good. So it's kind of a very robust classification. For example, tumor detected tumor in the patch and there was no problem. But now it's a patch with an artifact. And we have seen, so we reproduced a kind of 12 different situation and artifacts. And we have seen that with all these artifacts, the accuracy of the model, which is trained on the very high quality training material, will drop. So, of course, you don't know why it happens, because in some situations, pathologists will be able to, uh, to make a proper diagnosis, but model just fails. And basically, different artifacts produce different types of misclassification. Uh, so some of them produce false positive results. Uh, some of them produce false negative results. And both misclassifications have different impact for clinical practice. For example, false positive results, tumor uh, model says there is a tumor here in tissue, but it was not a tumor. So if you provide such kind of diagnosis in clinics, the patient will suffer from unnecessary operation. So for example, if we say there is a tumor in stomach, stomach will be removed and this is a very difficult operation. So it's just harm for patient. And also false negative results. There is a tumor in tissue, but model says there is no tumor in tissue. And we provide this information into clinic and a patient has a tumor and lives with a tumor. And at some point, he or she comes to a physician with metastasis and you can no more treat this tumor effectively. So this kind of different misclassification and these misclassifications in case of artifacts, they could be two, four, five, and even 10% of patches which are affected with this misclassification. So kind of artifacts is a very important confounder for model accuracy. And I think the main result of our study is that every artifact can affect model accuracy. And in case of artifacts, as you say, a model will fail uh, silently. So we don't have any feedback. Model just fails and it can just go unrecognized. And then the main conclusion or main conclusions are that we have to control for artifacts in several ways. I think three main ways are possible. For example, you can just introduce artifacts into your training data. So augment your training data with the artifacts. You can, to some extent, compensate these misclassifications. The other possibility is you just have another model which detects artifacts. So kind of uh, press screens the slide and detect the artifacts and then give this information to the main model, for example, for tumor detection. And there is also another way um, kind of trying what you actually and barn with a team do. So kind of providing out of distribution metrics or uncertainty metrics. So there is a kind of mechanism in the model for tumor detection, which allows to estimate if the predictions on this particular part are reliable and if there is something special that model has never seen before. So I think that that's probably the main conclusions of this paper. All right, thank you very much for the detailed explanation. By the way, uh, this paper is really a reading recommendation from our side. Also, it should be noted that it's available open access, so you can just download and check it out. Also has some very nice visualizations. I really love them. Maybe uh, one question about the main takeaway points that you've mentioned, especially the three 
possibilities to deal with uh, possible artifacts, occlusions, and other peculiarities in the data. If I was to implement a deep learning model for digital pathology, what would you say is the recommended way to, to do it of the three ways? Or what are the differences between the three uh, possibilities? Are there maybe trade-offs in performance or in quality? Yeah, I think that uh, there is uh, maybe um, a kind of higher level conclusion from uh, from this is um, kind that every person who develops something or maybe even tries to implement this kind of commercial product, he or she should know the model. So um, kind of regular stress tests of the models at different stages um, is very important to understand if model um, can perform well in case of artifacts, in case of this huge heterogeneity we have, or maybe there are some problems. For example, if you extend training, your training material with several slides, it can be so that behavior with regard to artifacts will change. And you have to always, with every change of the model, you have to prove if it's going to work in this specific environment with heterogeneity. With regard to your question, I think all three ways are necessary to compensate for potential drops of accuracy in case of artifacts. But I can't balance them against each other because I think it's um, actually something very empirical. So you can just make some tests on your model and you see how it will improve in case of augmentation and to which extent it will improve through augmentation. I think it's um, relatively easy experiments. Uh, when you see, okay, through augmentation, I can receive kind of accuracy, but there are still situations in which model will fail. And then you have to address to other directions. You have to detect artifacts. Or maybe, of course, if you say I will detect artifacts, then you have to implement another model. You have to train it. You have to implement it. Time of analysis will extend. So probably a kind of uncertainty or out-of-distribution metrics will be an easier way and quicker way to address this problem. So you can see if you can, uh, through uncertainty metrics or auto-distribution metrics, address the, the rest amount of artifacts, and there will be probably some situation where you still cannot address with this uh, augmentation and uncertainty, then you will probably have to detect it as this artifact. So I think it's a kind of complex pipeline, and it's very empirical. It's about the particular models. I think it cannot be a general recommendation for everyone, for every model. Thank you. Also something I was thinking about that they are probably right, at least at the current situation of the research, it's difficult to come up with some general prescription about things mm -hmm. that would work again and again. It has to be case by case basis. Maybe once we have enough evidence of case by case basis, then we can make some more, let's say, theoretical statements about it. But yeah, really, this is a wonderful benchmark data set that you have. And I think everybody should try out and see how their awesome models are performing in such data set or how the interesting modes of failures are. I guess one question I was thinking about from a very, let's say, I don't know, uh, from the cloud look of the topic without knowing much details about the particular thing is that basically you have generated these artifacts in a synthetic fashion, right? 
I guess when you are generating artifacts in a synthetic way, the main focus is that these should look realistic to a human eye. Whereas if you are looking at the pattern recognition systems such as deep learning, they are not necessarily finding similar patterns as humans. And this we know for sure, for example, of the adversarial examples where you even change one pixel and the model changes the entire decision to something else. So that way, my question really was that while the synthetically generated artifacts look similar to our eyes as humans, how similar does it look in the eye of a pattern recognition system? Is it thinking that this is realistic or this is something very different? I think probably that I will not be able to answer this question in all details because I think it, how the model analyzes the artifacts is kind of very specific and sometimes unclear way. But I think, for example, for some types of synthetic artifacts, for example, when we take focus quality as artifact, you know, focus is a big problem. It, uh, you can encounter focus problems in every slide. So actually focus is something uh, where you have to have additional an additional model that will screen the uh, slide for focus inconsistencies. And for example, the common way to train such a model is actually a synthetic way. So you can take off Gaussian Blur instrument and make a synthetic data set where you apply different sizes of Gaussian blue kernels and make patches, the same patches with different levels of uh, focus deterioration. And then you can kind of train a model on this synthetic information and then you can apply it to new slides. And then in a matter of fact, such model actually detects real out-of-focus areas with very high precision. So probably, for example, at least for focus, um, a quality kind of real focus artifacts and synthetic focus artifacts are probably interpreted by the model like it kind of the same things. There are kind of artifacts which we cannot reproduce effectively. For example, the tissue folds. So you probably have to select slides and, and really try to generate data set from real artifacts. Yeah, for example, staining, when we consider staining as an artifact, if you use kind of a stain of style transfer, I think it's probably something where the model can really interpret this kind of staining patterns very different from the way the humans do it. So kind of what you addressed with your question. So actually, I think that to understand if it's more human-like perception or if it's a very specific and special for the model, um, it will be probably necessary to go deeper into details, kind of weigh what you, for example, implement with um, uncertainty metrics or so kind of weigh you will probably find the answer to this question. But I think the tests we made with our models in course of this study were not deep, I think, not deep enough to answer this question. Very nice. I mean, you are really pushing the horizon in that sense because these are really questions which typical computer science kind of mindset won't answer, but this comes from the fact of reality and reality is much more complex. And if we are not answering these, then there is no chance of really translating the models to clinical practice. So I guess since we are almost towards the end of today's episode, so I will probably ask 
one last question in the in the general direction. So deep learning and digital pathology seems like there will be more and more work that's going to be coming uh, in an international scene, of course, but also from Germany, from your group, from several other groups who are working in this. So maybe if we have to, I don't know, go into five years down the line, what do you think would be the biggest impact of AI and deep learning technology in the digital pathology world? I think that if we basically split all possible application of deep learning into the diagnostic ones, so these kind of simple tasks pathologists do every day, and kind of advanced uh, tasks, I think the most impact is to awaken the kind of um, automatization of diagnostic tasks, so kind of tools which provide simple input and can perform simple pathology tasks. I think there are several tools already which can be used. I think the, another trend will be to investigate um, how what else we can is extract from pathology data. And it's all about this kind of advanced application. If we can decipher kind of genetic or molecular genetic information from these slides, kind of make uh, predictive or prognostic biomarkers from the appearance of the tissue to be able to prognose or to predict the therapy response. I think there, there are several studies, but uh, no one knows if it's going to be enough relevant or enough precise for clinic. And I, I think many of the studies we do is kind of, uh, not kind of uh, studies where we would like to see product or maybe a clear goal at the end. So many studies we make are about maybe a, a little bit more instrumental goals. So we kind of create instruments and probably next two, three, four, five years, we are going to create instruments which we can apply to large data sets. We don't have uh, large, well-annotated data sets, kind of two or three thousand patient cases or even 10,000 patient cases. And I think many application of deep learning or maybe many insights we can achieve with deep learning are about large, well-annotated, high-quality data sets we don't have. So we can't create of instruments to be able to mine these data sets. And I think it's very important to stay a little bit open-minded or maybe to pursue kind of open-endedness in the research because you don't know where it goes next two, three years. Because in medicine, we look at the general application of artificial intelligence kind of, uh, we take a lot of instruments we use from other domains or so kind of general computer visions. And we don't know what's going to happen there in two or three years. And probably it will be some game-changing technology which we can effectively apply to medicine. So I think it's kind of uh, prognosis which can be really very different or maybe two, three years. So we have to wait and just to make what we can make for a moment. All right, that's really wonderful summary of how things are going to happen. And I'm sure all the young researchers in the Mikai community who are interested in digital pathology and AI will learn a lot from today's episode and the discussion we had. So on that note, thank you so much, Yuri, for taking your time and actually explaining us all this wonderful work that is coming from your group and yeah, all the collaborations we are planning to have together and where the field is necessarily heading. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much for inviting me. This was also a very insightful discussion for me and I wish you a success for a podcast. I have heard several um, several parts and I think it's very interesting and hopefully it can be also very interesting for community to uh, hear such discussions. All right. On that note, bye-bye to Yuri and yeah, have a nice day. <laughs>